0: We went to Knott's on Wednesday, and I know a lot of the leaders and some of you students had the Knott's app downloaded. How many, did any of you guys have the Knott's app downloaded? Okay, like three of you guys. I remember being on the Knott's app, and right when we got there, it said like they were all closed because it was raining, and it was sad, and then there was lightning, and then it like got really hot, and then it started raining again. Then it was hot for the rest of the day. It was like, what is the weather going on? And I remember throughout the day looking at the like, wait times for different rides because you want to, like, time it up. And I heard some of the groups really got, like, the eighth grade girls were like, we got to hit this one because it's 25 minutes, and then it's 15 minutes, and then got to, like, get it all mapped out and regimented. I was kind of more go with the flow, but I was like, okay, I want to look at the app to make sure that the wait times are right. I remember looking at the app, and unfortunately, the app wasn't the most accurate. I remember for like a long span of time, it said Silver Bullet. Back when it was up and running, all the rides were going, it was like a zero-minute wait. I'm like, that's that's like not even possible, like zero minutes. I think it was more like 25, 30 minutes, but the app said zero-minute wait. Uh, I remember going to the Rapids, and when I went there, it said 25-minute wait. Guess what? I waited probably an hour in the Rapids just to go down the Rapids. So much fun. I remember Ghost Rider, the first ride that, if you were with my group that went on, Drake, Connor, some of you guys, we went on. It said, I think it was like a 25 to 30 minute wait because this was right when the r- rides opened back up again. They can attest, we did not wait 25 minutes. We waited probably two hours for Ghost Rider, two hours. And of course, we get off the ride and we look back at the line and it's like, wow, the line is like half the length of like when we got in line. What was going on? what was up with this app, the wait times were inaccurate, were not good. And I realized after the 1st ride of it said 25 minutes and it was two hours. I was like, all right, I don't really believe this app very much. Same thing when we went to the Rapids. Like, okay, maybe it is 25 minutes. It was like an hour. And then I was like, okay, forget it. (laughs) It's wrong twice on this. I do not want to listen to it. I like paid attention to it like zero the rest of the day because it was like, who cares? This thing is wrong all the time. Well, a claim that you hear about the Bible is that the Bible is wrong a lot. That the Bible has errors all throughout it. Errors such as Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 tell two different accounts of creation. How can both of them be right? Errors such as in Matthew, there's a genealogy of Jesus listed, and in Luke, there's a genealogy of Jesus listed, and guess what? They don't line up. Errors such as The story of Jesus' birth and the timeline of the events that happened, different gospels seem to say different things. Errors such as, oh, in the different gospels, it says that there were different people at the tomb of Jesus right before he rose from the dead. These, along with so many other things, people will point to them and say, there's all these inaccuracies and all these errors in the Bible. And similar to the Knott's Berry Farm app, it caused a lot of people to say, well, why should I even listen to it if, there's this, if it's just riddled with all of these errors, all of these mistakes, all these things that factually are not true? Why should I even listen to it? It's a question that I want us to answer. Can we even trust what the Bible says? How can we have confidence that the Bible doesn't have errors in it? Does the Bible have errors in it? Because if the Bible is full of errors, if there are these inaccuracies, if it says contradictory things, why should we even read it? Why should we even listen to it? What parts can we trust? Can we even trust any of it altogether? Well, Scripture gives a very clear and specific explanation as to whether the Bible is true. Well, what parts of it are true or not? And the answer is in Numbers chapter 23. I see some of you already there, but if not, open up to Numbers chapter 23. It gives us a very clear and specific explanation. Can we trust God's word? Is it, as the title says, filled with a bunch of errors where it contradicts itself left and right, and we shouldn't even listen to it? Or is it true? Or is it not filled with errors. How do we know? Numbers 23, I'm going to look at one verse today. We're going to go a bunch of cross references, but this is going to be our main passage. Numbers 23, 19. It says this. It says, God is not man that he should lie. So contrast here, God and man. Man, guess what? Lies all the time. Left and right. person could say something to you, and guess what? You're like is what they're saying really true? Is it what they're saying really accurate? Yeah, a man could lie to you to your face, and guess what? You wouldn't know it. Guess what? It says, God is not like man that he should lie. Guess what? God does not lie. Or a son of man that he should change his mind. It's not one day where God's thinking, oh, this should happen, and then a week later, he's like, oh, actually, this should happen. God doesn't change his mind like Junior hires change their mind day after day as to who they like. It's like, oh, I like this person today. And it's like, oh, now I like this person. And it's like, everyone's changing their mind all the time. Guess what? God does not change his mind. He doesn't think one thing, and then he has to correct it the next day. It's like, oh, actually, that's not true. Uh, believe this. This is what I'm saying now. He doesn't change his mind. Second half of verse 19 says, has he said, has God said stuff? Yes, he has. And will he not do it? Yes, he will. Or as he's spoken, and will he not fulfill it? So he's, questions that are supposed to elicit a response of, yes, of course. Has God said things? Yes, he has. Will he not do it? Obviously. If God says something, he does it. Or has he spoken? We already said, yeah, he has. And will he not fulfill it? If God says something that he's going to do, guess what? It's going to take place. In this passage, we see that the Bible makes clear that there's no lies found within it. That the Bible, which is God's message to us, is filled with truth. That the Bible is not lies to us, aren't things where they contradict one another, where in the Old Testament, God says one thing, and then in the New Testament, He says something different, and they contradict each other. No, Numbers twenty-three, nineteen 19 says God does not change His mind. The Bible, which is God's message, what God has spoken to us, we talked about that the first section of this series of Fact Check, where God has spoken to us. We talked about the inspiration of Scripture, that What is written down in the Bible is exactly what God wants us to have written down. Guess what? God does not speak lies. God does not correct himself. God's words always come to pass, and that's because God's word isn't a lie, but it is true. Point number one, write that down. We need to affirm Scripture as true. It's not a lie. It's not Things that contradict themselves, although there might be some passages, and we'll talk about some of them, where it seems to say some things. Where how can we reconcile them both as being true? If God says something, it comes to pass. It is the truth. Psalm twelve six talks about this. It says, "The words of the Lord, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times." It's like, hey, if you put silver in a furnace, guess what? You put it in this furnace, it's going to get rid of all the impurities in this silver. That's what happens when you like, heat up something like gold or like, precious metals. It gets rid of all these impurities. It's like, say you took silver and put it in this hot furnace seven times. It's like, okay, the first time, get rid of all the impurities. Second time, oh, again. Oh, third time, there's little less impurities. It keeps taking them out. Fourth time, there's like not really anything. It's like doing that process seven times, guess what? That silver is going to be super pure. It's going to be super clean, not these mistakes and these uh, impurities found in the silver. Same thing, God's word is even more pure than silver that's been purified seven times through a furnace. It is certain there are no errors found in Scripture. Although man might lie, God does not lie. When I think about the difference between God who speaks the truth as found in scripture and man telling a lie, it brings me back to Knott's Berry Farm when you probably experienced this as well, where you were standing in line and then someone would come up through the line and say, I've got a friend up there. (laughs) And then I remember specifically being on the rapids and being in line and like, it seemed like every five minutes there was like a group of people that looked like you were high schoolers. It's like, oh yeah, my my friends, my friends are right up there. It's like, oh yeah, oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Your friends up there? Great. I remember one time specifically I was standing there and some guy was walking up and trying to catch his friend and he whispered in my ear he said hey can we cut in line with you guys I was like oh was like, <laughs> I, was like oh, I was waiting for this I was like no not only can you not cut in line with this but I'm sending you right back where you came from I was like go back there and I told the other guys behind I was like send them back it's like, now every time after that, I was even more so skeptical of all these people who were like, oh yeah, I've got a friend up there. It's like they would come now passing through and be like, oh yeah, yeah you, got, yeah, you got a friend up there? Yeah? They'd be like, yeah, I do, I do, I do. And then like a couple minutes later, you'd see them like walking back because there was a a guy who started sending people back and then I was like, oh yeah, they're on a different ride or something. It's like, oh yeah, you forgot. They're on a different ride. And they pretend to be on the phone as they're walking back. Like, I don't know where you guys are at. Like, I thought you were here. It's like, okay, yeah, I know what you're really trying to do. You've got a friend up there. You've got family up there. You're just lying to my face. That's, I guess it's not fine. It's not good, but not going to make a big deal about it because I'm not going to be the Karen in line, but don't approve of what you're doing. It's like, you experienced that when people were lying to you left and right. Guess what? Man lies to us, but guess what? God never lies. God speaks the truth, whole truth, nothing but the truth. God's message, which is scripture, a term that is used by biblical scholars is this term called inerrancy. I want you to write that down, inerrancy. The inerrancy of scripture, here's the definition of it I want you to write down, is that the Bible is completely true and free from error. Inerrancy. Doctrine of inerrancy says that the Bible is completely true and free from error. Say, hey, the Bible in its original documents, the original documents that were written by the prophets and the apostles, the writers of scripture, those documents are Completely true and free from error. Well, how can we know that? We talked about that a few weeks ago. The inspiration of the Holy Spirit, allowing what to be written down to be exactly God's message. It's free from error. That anything found in Scripture does not contradict facts. It's completely true. John 17, 17, a verse we probably said about every week, says, sanctify them in your truth, in the truth, sorry. Your word is truth. That God's word is the standard of truth. It's God's objective truth to us. I know there's a lot of subjective truth or objective truth. It's like, oh yeah, the Bible is just someone's opinion. What someone uh, believes, it's just a belief. Oh yeah, you believe that the Bible is not true. I believe that the Bible is true. Okay, whatever, doesn't matter. No, the Bible corresponds to that which is real. The Bible is rooted in history, historical events that actually took place. Either those events took place or they didn't. That's an objective truth claim saying, this event happened. Either the Israelites were in bondage in Egypt and they came out of slavery or they didn't. It's not like, oh yeah, well, I believe it happened and you didn't believe it happened. It's like, no, that's not how it works. Either that happened or it didn't happen. Bible is making absolute truth claims that this is what happened. It's like, say for example, I could say that my favorite car is like the Rolls Royce 2022, whatever a Rolls Royce car. I could say, oh, the best, the best car out there is the Rolls-Royce 2022. I could say that and you could disagree with me on that. And I could say, well, well, yeah, that's, that's my personal opinion that the best car out there is the Rolls-Royce 2022. You could see like, oh no, it's a Ferrari or it's a Lamborghini. And that's okay because that's a matter of difference between our opinions. It's like, is there an objective standard? It's Like, no, this is like the best car this year. It's like, no, it's just your personal opinion. But what is an objective truth claim is if I said, hey, I own a 2022 Rolls Royce. I own it. You might say, oh, you don't own it. I say, oh, it's just a matter of opinion here. You say, I don't own it. I say, I do own it. It'd be like, no, there's a a reality that exists, Nathan, that either you own this car or you don't own this car. That That absolute objective truth claim, I say, I own a 2022 Rolls Royce. You can either say, yeah, that's objectively true Or that's, guess what, objectively false. The Bible doesn't make the claims of opinion, like, oh, you believe, or your favorite ice cream is strawberry and mine is vanilla, and that's okay because that's just our own personal opinion. No, the Bible makes claims of things that actually happened, that this historical event took place, that Jesus literally died on the cross. That's not a matter of opinion. That's a matter of did this take place or not? Is this true or is it not? And guess what? Scripture, every single time, is verifiably objectively true inerrancy the bible is completely true and free from error there's another term i want you to write down which is called the infallibility of scripture write down infallibility and throughout church history oftentimes these words have been used synonymously so inerrant errancy meaning error in meaning the opposite so without error so Infallibility, something that is fallible, is something that can change or something that can mess up. Infallible is that the Bible is incapable of erring. You can write that down. Infallibility is that the Bible is incapable of erring. So, not only when we say that the Bible is true, that it is free from errors, but guess what? It's not even capable of erring. You see how that's like just a next level of whoa. Okay, it's not only free of errors, but like in the future, down the road, if people bring up something, it's like, oh, well, this was actually true. Guess what? It's incapable of erring. It's like, wait, why do we need to make this distinction between inerrancy, infallibility? Why do we need to make this distinction? It's because a lot of people hold this view, which is called limited inerrancy, which means that on when the Bible talks about important things like how to be made right with God or how we should live our lives, that those things are true and free from error. But guess what? If the Bible talks about certain events in history, or if the Bible gives certain accounts, some of these non-as-important doctrinal issues, but some of these, oh, how they phrase what took place, they could have used exaggeration, those things aren't necessarily true. So limited inerrancy, says that topics related to faith and practice, they don't have errors, but guess what? Not every word or not every detail of scripture is true. That's what they would say, and we would say that it's completely wrong. We'd say every word of God is true. Why would we say that? We talked about this not so long ago, because that's what Jesus said. He said, every word of God proves true. Not an iota, not a dot will pass away until all will be accomplished. We'd say, well, it looks like Jesus said that All of Scripture is true. Not just the important things like how to be made right with God, but the historical events and how they told them. Those details. Even the scientific things that the Bible talks about. Saying all those things, guess what? They're accurate. They're true. They're not wrong. Proverbs 35 says, Every word of God proves true. Okay, Jesus says it's every word. Proverbs 30 verse 5 says, Every word of God proves true all of it together. That's why Christians throughout history, Christians today would say, yeah, the Bible is inerrant. It's free from error. It's completely true. And it's infallible. It's not even capable of erring or there being a mistake in it. It's not possible. Well, how do we know it's not possible? It goes back to what we talked about a couple weeks ago, and we'll go super quickly through it. We know that it's incapable of erring because guess what? God cannot err. God cannot make a mistake. God cannot do wrong. God cannot lie. We, we looked at that in Numbers 23, 19. 2 Timothy 3:16, passage we talked about a couple times, says, all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture, every word, is exactly what God wanted to be written down. Because God is the standard for what is true. His words, Scripture, God's message to us, we can know is completely true, not filled with error. It should cause us to have a higher view of Scripture than maybe we currently have. You might look at your Bible and, and say, okay, yeah, I've got, a, I've got a lot of reading to do today. I've got to read the Bible. I've got to read my school books. I've got some fun books I like to enjoy reading. And you kind of like clump them all together. You see how the Bible stands apart from all these other books. That, okay, yeah, your history book could be wrong. Your science book, guess what? You know why they make new additions, new revisions? <laughs> it's because scientific things keep coming out each time. It's like, oh, we, that was actually not true. We actually believe this. It's like, oh, yeah, like evolution is true. Oh, yeah, they're kind of moving away towards that from that and saying that it's some sort of seeding. Science is always changing all the time, and guess what? Scripture, yeah, there's different translations that come out, but guess what? The original, uh, the original manuscripts don't change; they stay the same. The message does not change. It's not like, oh yeah, we forgot about like this book of the Bible. We need to like create a new edition that's got this Bi- book of the Bible in it. It's like no, that's what cults do. <laughs> Say, oh, we need a new edition. No, don't need to revise the Bible because Scripture is completely true. God doesn't change His mind. Numbers 23:19. God is not man that he should lie, or son of man that he should change his mind. We should have a high view of Scripture. It speaks to the truth. Have a high view of it. Because of that, when people try to bash the truth or say wrong things about the Bible, we should be quick to stand up for it, quick to defend it. Imagine if one of you was going around in the narrow and saying lies about my fiance Becca. If you were going around spreading lies like, do you know that Becca doesn't like any of the girls in her small group? It's like this rumor going around. Or it's like, did you guys know that like Becca doesn't believe that birds are real? Like that they're actually like part of the government like spying on you? Like, do you know that Becca believes that like the earth is flat? Like the earth is flat. Oh, it's not flat. No, it's like a donut. It's like a donut. I, you look up and it's the blue is like the, the ocean from the other side of the donut. Yeah, it's like, yeah, can you believe that? And you're going around the narrow and telling everyone all these lies about my fiance Becca. If now, imagine I hear word that you're going around spreading all these lies about my fiance Becca. What do you think I'm gonna do? I'm gonna come up to you, I'm gonna grab you on the shoulder, I'm gonna say, What are you doing? Why are you making up these lies about my fiance Becca? I'm going to be upset with you. I'm going to be frustrated with you because I care about my fiance Becca. And guess what? If lies are being spread around her, these false things, guess what? I'm going to stand up for her. I'm not going to allow you to go around and spread these false ideas about my fiance because I care about her. Well, guess what? There's a lot of people spreading false ideas about the Bible. A lot of people making lies and spreading lies to all kinds of people about the Bible. And if we care about the Bible as we should, we need to not let that happen. There's a little bit of, oh man, that's not right. People saying that the, the Bible has errors in it, that there's falsities in the Bible, that the Bible is a lie, that the Bible's a joke, that the Bible contradicts itself. That should get you kind of, oh man, that, that, I don't like that. Just like I would be frustrated if you were saying lies about my fiancee, Becca. I'd be frustrated. We should not be happy when other people say lies about the Bible, lies such as that Scripture is filled with errors and contradiction. Point number two, we should counter it by being ready to answer objections. When people spread these things about Scripture and say, there are lies in the Bible, there are contradictions in the Bible, we need to be ready to answer those. We need to be ready to respond to those. We need to be ready to look to Scripture and say, what are, you, what are you saying about the Bible? Why are you spreading these things? Let's go to scripture and see what it, what it actually says. Be ready to answer and to respond to these objections. In Numbers chapter 23, the verse that, uh, that we're talking about, Numbers 23-19, I think it would be helpful at this point to give a little bit of background of what's happening in this passage. In Numbers chapter 23, Balak hires Balaam, a prophet to curse Israel. You guys remember that? And then Balaam's got the whole thing with the donkey, where the donkey speaks to him. Um, So Balak hires this guy named Balaam, I know they're similar names, to curse Israel. And so he hires this guy to curse his enemy, the Israelites, because he's part of another nation, and he's like, we don't like the Israelites. Curse them for us. Well, God tells Balaam, hey, you're not going to curse my people, but rather you're going to bless them. So as Balak hires Balaam to curse Israel, he hears him, his, his curse, and what he does is he blesses Israel. <laughs> He's like, oh, yeah, Israel's great. Like, things are going to go well for Israel. Then Balak's like, dude, <laughs> what are you doing? Like, <laughs> I told you not to do that. Like, you're supposed to do the opposite. You see how, like, you're on my team, like, not on their team? And so then he takes Balaam to another place, and he says, all right, now, this time you need to curse Israel. Then in this second thing where he says basically the same thing again, he blesses Israel. And that's where in this section where he again blesses Israel, he says, Numbers 23, 19, which is, God is not man that he should lie or son of man that he should change his mind. says, hey, God told me to say this message. Guess what? God's not going to go again and say, oh, actually, actually, Balaam, what you should do now is you should curse him. (laughs) What you should do now is, oh yeah, curse Israel now. It's like, no, God has spoken. Guess what? He's gonna do it again. It happens like two more times after where Balak takes him to another place. He's like, try it again, try it again. <laughs> then he blesses Israel again. Then the fourth time, he's like, come over here, come over here. All right, try it again. Blesses him again. It says, the second half of Numbers twenty three nineteen. has he not said and will he not do it? Say, like, hey, God has spoken already. Let's go see what God has spoken. You've already heard it. You've already heard it, Balak. Three times, he's already spoken, he's already made himself super clear you think he's going to change his mind. He's not. When people bring objections and say that the Bible's filled with errors, we need to say, hey, let's go to Scripture. Let's see what the Bible says. You've got these errors that you say are found within it. Show me where it is. That'd be a great response to someone who says, oh, yeah, the Bible's got all these errors in it. Say, okay, what are the errors? I'd love to know. What are the errors found in Scripture? show me what book, what, what book that's serious. That's a big deal. Say that God's word, that God's messed up, that God says something wrong. Yeah, let me, let me find out. Let me, let's look at the Bible together. That'd be a great response to have. Show me the error. We shouldn't shy away when people say the Bible has errors in it. We shouldn't be like, oh, like, I don't want to hear it. Like, no, 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 no. Like the kid who's like, well, like, no, I can't hear you, I can't hear you. We shouldn't like shy away from it. Because we can affirm that scripture is true because it's God's word, we should be eager to hear, hey, wh- what do you think contradicts itself? Or what are the errors that you think is found within it? Let's look at scripture together and let's, let's talk about it. We need to be like the Bereans in Acts 17, 11. It says this, these Jews, these Berean Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they received the word, God's word, with all eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. I'm sure you've heard this passage before. They were constantly going back to scripture and saying, hey, people are saying these things. Preachers are saying these things. Other people are saying these things. Well, guess what I need to do? I need to go back to scripture. Is it true what they're saying? Or is it not true? Let me go to the Bible and really figure out whether these things are true or whether they're, they're false. I need to be eagerly to go back to the scripture to Find out whether these things are true or not. Now let's talk about some of these objections that you might hear. People are going to bring up these things that may be perceived errors and perceived contradictions in Scripture that, guess what? They're not. They're not. We're going to go through a couple of these. You can go through so many, um, but we don't have four hours, but I will suggest some books at the end. What are some perceived errors and contradictions that are not actually? Well, first... We need to understand that the Bible has various writing styles and normal common speech used. So, write that down. The Bible has various writing styles and normal common speech used. What do we mean by that? People will look at John, who was an unlearned fisherman, and say, oh man, okay, he he writes a certain way. And then Luke who's a more edu- educated individual, and it's like, okay, they're, they're, they're writing kind of differently. They must not really be saying the same things. We say, okay, just because they have a different style to write doesn't mean they contradict in some way. Just because they have a different style of writing doesn't mean that what they're writing is false. Okay, just because one person isn't as educated as the other person, does that mean that what they're writing down is not true? No, it doesn't. Second part of that, that normal, everyday, common speech is used in Scripture. Let me give you an example of that. In Psalm 113, verse 3, it says, From the rising of the sun to its setting. Okay, from the rising of the sun. People would look at that and say, Oh, oh, yeah, you say the Bible's without error? You think that the sun rises? You think the sun rises? Oh, you you think that, oh yeah, the earth is the center of the, the solar system, you crazy Christians, that the sun rises. It's like, you don't know that. The sun doesn't rise. It's the rotation of the earth that then causes the sun to rise and the sun to set. You think you crazy Christians think that the sun rises and the sun sets? They say that's an error in the Bible. The rising of the sun to the setting? That's not scientifically accurate. It's a rotation of the earth. That causes the sun to rise, the sun to set. I say that's, that's an error found in Scripture. We'd look at that and say, okay, if we're just using normal, everyday, common language, which is what Scripture is written, when saying the rising of the sun, that's from the author's perspective, writing what is happening. It's like, okay, we get it. They, would, would you rather have them write down in, in Scripture from the earth's rotation that allows us to perceive the sun to when we turn back and rotate again on the axis, then we can't see the sun. It's like, that'd, <laughs> that'd be so weird if like, that's what you read in Psalm 113. It's like, from the earth's rotation around the sun to the earth's rotation again around the sun, it's like, what? Like, that doesn't make any sense. It's just writing in a way that it's like what, what's perceiving happening. Oh, yeah, it looks like the sun is coming up, and it looks like the sun is going down. It's not trying to make a statement about scientifically, oh, yeah, the earth is the center of the solar. That's not what it's saying. It's from the author's perspective, writing what's going down. But people will say, hey, that's an error found in Scripture. That's it's not true. It's writing from the author's perspective what is happening. Other things that are used in Scripture are approximations. Approximations. That's part of normal, everyday, common speech that is used. Uh, Just approximations. For example, say I said, okay, in a battle, there was a battle that took place in the Civil War or something like that. And say, what if I said 20,000, like I said, in in this battle, 20,000 people died. Would you go back and be like, huh? Actually, Nathan, you were lying it was 20,104 people that died. You're wrong. You were, you were lying to us. Ha, huh, I got you. It was 20,104. Oh no, it was 19,850 people that died. Huh, that's an error. That's a mistake. You messed up. It's like, okay, really? But th- these, what people would say, there's an error. Yeah, the Bible says, oh, yeah, in these passages that this many people died. Oh, yeah, well, what if it was 20,101? Oh, th- It's 101 people off. It's like, okay, part of the normal everyday language that we use, part of how we talk with each other is by approximations. If I asked you what time you got up this morning, you might be like, oh, I got up at 8. And I wouldn't be like, you're lying to me. You got up at 8.01. (laughs) It's like, okay, that's ridiculous. That's just like how we use common language today normal common language being used is not an error in scripture that's part of the inerrancy of scripture inerrancy would affirm that yeah there's different writing styles and there's common language that we use to describe things and yeah okay i get the rotation of the sun is we're revolving around the sun that wasn't the point of why he was writing that down it's from the author's perspective what he's seeing happening that's not an error that's not a mistake taking place Another error that they would say or perceived error would, they would look at different passages such as the synoptic gospels that describe the same event, but give different details. So I put it like this, variations in details about the same event, variations in details about the same event. So let's take the gospels, for example, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four different perspectives and a lot of them overlap. Sometimes you find in all four accounts, diff- uh, different different. Um, different details emphasized, but the same event being described. I'm sure you've heard that before. There's even a cool thing that you can get um, that has all of the gospels and all the parallel passages right next to each other. So you can see like the different details that are emphasized in each of them. But they would take things like this, for example. In Matthew chapter 12, it says that the mothers and brothers were outside seeking to speak to him. So seeking to speak to Jesus. In Mark chapter 3, it says, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. It's like, whoa. Okay, well, were they looking to speak to him or were they just looking for him? Then Luke 8, it says, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. Hmm. Okay, are they wishing to see him? Are they looking for him? Or are they wanting to speak to him? They'd say, "Whoa, look at that saying three different things. That's contradicting each other. We'd be like, when we'd look at a passage like that, we'd say, well, yeah, they're probably standing outside, looking for him, trying to talk to him. Things like that where people would be like, oh, it's contradicting. Where if you just read it for a little bit, seeking to speak to him, looking for you, outside wishing to see you. Does that sound very different in the intent of the event that's taking place? It sounds like, okay, I think I understand what's going on in that passage. Whereas people would say, "No." They're disagreeing with each other. It's got to be one of the three. It's no, I think they I think they're saying the same thing. Variations in details about the same events aren't errors, aren't saying two contradictory things. But people would look at passages such as I said at the forefront, who was there at Jesus' tomb? In John, it says Mary Magdalene was at the tomb. In Matthew chapter 28, it says Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. In Mark chapter 16, it says Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome. In Luke 23, it says Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James and other women. It's saying different things. So was just Mary there? Was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary there? Was Mary there with other women? They would look at passages like that and I found it on a a couple articles um, just looking up just googling contradictions in the Bible and saying, "Oh, I wonder what people are coming up with," um, and that was one of them. The Gospels can't even get on the same page about who was there at the tomb of Jesus. It's like oh, those stupid Christians. Like, eh. how would you respond to that? Who was there? Was it Mary? By herself? Was it the two Marys? Was it Mary, Mary, and Salome? Was it a bunch of women? If you didn't have an answer, some people might laugh in your face and say, see, the Bible contradicts itself. I think this one's more of a simpler answer because Luke 23 says, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and other women. So does John say only Mary Magdalene was there? No, it doesn't. Does Matthew 28 say only Mary Magdalene and Mary were there? No. Just because I only detailed certain people that were at a certain event and someone else detailed other people at the event, does that mean that we're lying or that there was an error? What if I said, oh, who was at the narrow tonight? Oh, I said, oh, yeah, Malachi, Bethany, Jude was there. And then someone asked Becca, who was at the narrow? She said, Harper, Bailey, Savannah. It's like, wait, they're contradicting each other. It's like, no, you don't understand that it's working together here. Those are the, some of the contradictions where at first, like probably at first when I said that one about the tomb of Jesus, you were like, wait, wait, who was there? But when we do a little bit of research, a little bit of study, we say, okay, I think it's not actually contradicting itself. It's not an error. So we said various writing styles, normal everyday common speech used, variations in details about the same event. Last one to write down, non-verbatim quotes are used in Scripture. You're like, what in the world is that? I know, they don't use it very much. Non-verbatim quotes, which means if you quote someone but don't say the exact thing that they said. So imagine if I said, if I came up to Abby that was working at the smoothie bar, and I said, Joe said they were going to go in, who's going to come in and get a smoothie in a minute. What if I I said that? Would that have been an accurate verbatim quote of what Joe probably told me? Oh, that he's going to come in to get a smoothie for a minute. Well, what if Joe said, I'm coming inside soon to drink a smoothie? It's like, okay, I would have had to say, hey, Abby, Joe said, I'm coming inside soon to drink a smoothie. But it's like nobody talks like that. (laughs) It's like, it's not like, hey, I wanted to let you know that Caleb said, I am going to come and drink a smoothie. It's like, no, hey, Joe said he's going to come in and get a smoothie. He's coming, come in and drink a smoothie in a minute. It's like, okay, yeah, you're saying the same message. You're not quoting him exactly, but it's a non-verbatim quote. So verbatim means exactly what he said. That's was written down. All throughout scripture, you see these non-verbatim quotes, things also called loose or free quotes. People would say, oh, that's inaccurate. Or that's an erroneous quote. It's like, no, I'm saying the same thing that Joe was saying. I just didn't exactly say, I am coming in to drink a smoothie. Does that mean I lied about what Joe said? No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. be ridiculous to think it. We see in the New Testament non-verbatim quotes of people. I mean, in Scripture, think about the non-verbatim quotes, which means he didn't write down exactly what was said. The biblical authors wrote down in the New Testament penned the Gospels in Greek. Well, guess what? Joseph, uh, Jesus spoke mostly Aramaic. So how could the authors have written down a verbatim quote of Jesus in a different language? It's like they, they couldn't, <laughs> or else they, unless they like put a paraphrase and they started writing in uh, Aramaic and they went back to Greek. But does that mean that they lied and they made up falsities about what Jesus actually said? No, it doesn't. Also, things like this, non-verbatim quotes of Old Testament passages. So if a New Testament author wanted to quote the Old Testament, they didn't have access to Bibles like we had. So it wasn't like just, hey, I'm going to pull up my personal Bible and like copy. Maybe you do this on your phone like, okay, I'm going to copy this and like paste it verbatim what the Bible says right here. They didn't have that. It wasn't like, oh, let's go down to where they have all the scrolls. Let's roll it out so I can write down exactly. But guess what? They had Scripture down pretty pat in their minds. And so they, when they're quoting Scripture and they're quoting these Old Testament passages, they're doing non-verbatim quotes. So not exactly what was written down, but the message is the same. They're not lying about, hey, they said this was in Scripture, but we can't find in the Old Testament where it's talking about this. No, the Bible uses, and all throughout Scripture we see non-verbatim quotes. So people would take things like that, common everyday speech, like saying, oh, the sun rises and sets. That's an error. They say variations in details. Oh, they say different people were at the tomb. That's a contradiction. They'd look at non-verbatim quotes. Oh yeah, well, they said that the Old Testament verse said this. Well, guess what? There was a the there and there was an and there. Oh, they're, they're disagreeing with each other. We'd say, no, that's Part of what God wanted the intended authors to write down exactly. That's not an error. That's not a contradiction. Even the doctrine of inerrancy would affirm these things. There's so many more objections that people will have to the inerrancy of Scripture. Like I said, I mean, I just scrolled through a couple articles of uh, look like atheists like or something like that, where it's like, oh, I wonder what they have to say about contradictions in the Bible. And you can guess. There's a lot of things that they will put on there. Well, guess what? you're going to hear more. You're going to hear a lot more. People say, this, the Bible said this thing and it was wrong. Rather than running away from those things, you should say, okay, I really want to figure out what is the right answer. You need to look into those things. I put a book on the back, which is Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. It talks more about inerrancy and inspiration. It's, I mean, it's a book like this big, so there's only a couple pages that talk about it. Um, and it gives a couple examples of difficult passages, or passages where you might look in scripture and say like, wait, how, how is that true? And it breaks down where it's like, oh here, let me help you understand that. Another book that I would recommend is a book by William Mounts called Why I Trust the Bible. It's a book that Pastor Mike gave recently to Focal Point, out to people who support Focal Point. Why I Trust the Bible. There's two chapters in there that are designated specifically to contradictions in the Bible. Well, it seems like Peter says one thing about faith and works, and James says something else about faith and works. How can they both be saying the same thing? Things like that. Well, Genesis 1 seems to give a certain order of creation. Genesis 2 gives another order of creation. How do we know that? Which, which, which one's right? How do they not contradict each other? Why, why can we believe that? There's another book called One Minute Answers to Skeptics. One Minute Answers to Skeptics. It's a very small book. Pastor Doug showed me this book. It's a tiny book, probably about that big. And as the title, it's like it gives all these questions, people that would have questions about the Bible, and it gives just like a couple, like two-paragraph responses about how we could respond to those objections. Lastly, I'm sure you guys have some of these books, the Answers in Genesis books. Um, those are great resources to have. Um, last I remember there were four, I'm sure there's more now, um, that just answer each chapter is a different question um, about either objections that people will have to the Bible or even just fun things like, did dinosaurs exist? Or like, how did they fit every, all the animals on the ark? But those are the things that people are going to say, oh, really, they, they couldn't have fit all the animals on the, on the ark? Yeah, that's crazy. How could they fit so many animals? You know how many animals there are? Two of every kind and seven of others couldn't fit on the ark. So the things that these books really go into. I know we couldn't go through a ton of objections that people have, but you're gonna keep learning about them over time. And that's why the specific application of point number two is to study scripture. You gotta study scripture. If you have a question about the Bible and you're like, okay, this doesn't seem to make sense, uh, look into it. Because guess what? We as Christians aren't, oh man, we're really unsure, man, maybe someone's going to say something, and they're going to prove that there's a bunch of errors in the Bible. Oh, no. Oh, no, we got to hide it away. It's like, no. Look at it. Throughout all of history, people have been trying to say, here's an error in the Bible. Here's an error in the Bible. Guess what? There's answers to them. There's answers to these objections that people seem to have, that we can trust, that we can rely upon. I remember even getting a question, on, it was from someone in Caitlin Pachowski's group, about like, when when did uh, When did the the temple be completed in Ezra and Nehemiah? Because it was like, oh, it seemed like in two different passages it was saying this was when it was completed or this was when it was completed. If you have questions like that, that's what your small group leaders are for. That's what your parents are for too. Questions that you can answer them. That's what I'm here for. If you have a question, ah, this passage doesn't even seem to make any sense at all. Or how can this be true? It says this in the Bible and it says this, how can they both be true? So great questions to ask. Not ones that we were going to shy away from too. Your leader isn't going to reprimand you and say, you shouldn't ask that question. How dare you? It's like, no, it's a great question. Let's look into it. And guess what? There are going to be some difficult passages where it's going to take even more study. There are some very tricky things. That's why Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, the one that's there on the back, it gives like five difficult passages that are like, it's like, it takes a lot of mental work to like understand them and get into the details of what's going on. Sometimes you have to go back to the original languages to really understand the nuance of a passage. Sometimes you have to use additional commentaries, or I think you all have a study Bible, um, access to you, you gotta use a study Bible to understand what's going on, because there's some difficulties in it. But study it. Ask your leader questions. You see how being able to answer these questions is a lot deeper than just, okay, I read my DBR today. Like okay, I did my flip grid, which is great. That's awesome, but being able to respond to an objection about who was really at the at the tomb of Jesus or Genesis one, Genesis two, that takes a a little bit more. It's like the person who's like uh, you've probably seen the meme before, where it's like the person playing video games and he's like leaning back, and then like later he's like paying attention and he's like playing it. It's like oh, first the first three quarters, like the teams are like leaning back and that's like really paying attention. Okay, only the guys are getting that meme. All right, um, okay, a couple of the girls got the meme too. Um, someone else, show your friends later the meme because then it'll make more sense at this point to you. Where it's like, it's more than just like leaning back and like reading your Bible like, oh, that was cool. Like, yeah, it says that I need to be kind today. It's like, okay, no, I really need to understand what's going on. Leaning forward, studying it, pulling out commentaries, pulling out maps, understanding what's going on. Do the study, it's good. Last thing, but Who cares? Why is it a big deal if there is, like, some errors in it? Okay, maybe the earth wasn't created in six days, like the Bible says. Who cares if the Bible's wrong about that? Point number three, you need to see the danger in denying inerrancy. So inerrancy, saying that the Bible is free from errors, complete truth. You see that there's a danger involved in denying the Bible is completely true. There's a danger in saying, hey, there are some errors found in the Bible. There's some errors. Think, for example, say we went to In-N-Out, like we do like every day, time it seems we hang out. Um, every day at Park hang out. In-N-Out, let's go. Um, I know you guys are getting sick of In-N-Out, so no, I'm just joking. <laughs> like, I heard a couple people were getting sick of In-N-Out, but hopefully you're not getting sick of In-N-Out. It's like, say you went to in and out and you said, okay, I want, a, I want a smoothie, and then I want a, the best flavor, not a smoothie, shake. Um, I was just thinking smoothies, because we just said the smoothies, smoothie bar, shakes. And you're going to get the best flavor, strawberry. Oh, <iguous voice> no, no, See, that's a subjective truth claim, because that's my favorite, but that's not an objective truth claim. So... Whatever ice uh, shake flavor you get, and right before they hand it to you, they say, okay, half of the ingredients we used for this were good ingredients. Half of them we, like, got from shakes that were left over in the trash. (laughs) But here you go. Half of it's good, but half of it's bad. I mean, I know some of you are gross and would still drink it, but (laughs) I hope that some of you would be like, Ooh, I don't want it. I'm good. Even if h- half of it was good, you'd say, well, I don't want it. Well, imagine you went up again and you're like, okay, I want a, a real good smoothie. And they say, okay, shake. shake. Why well, do I keep saying smoothie? Shake. See, I am not inerrant. I am not infallible. I do make mistakes. So not like the Bible. The Bible doesn't make mistakes. But say, okay, no, I want a I completely good Shake. See, I got it that time. Want a really good shake, and they're like, "Okay, here. Everything in this shake is good ingredients, except for one speck. One speck. feel okay. like, okay, one speck. Oh yeah, it's just one, one, one drop. One drop. Yeah, it's one, one drop of deadly poison. One drop of deadly poison. <laughs> it's like." Okay, now all of a sudden, like, one drop does matter a whole lot. You were thinking, it's like, oh, just like a little bit of dirt. It was like, okay, maybe that's not a big deal. It's like, okay, one drop dead at the point, that's a big deal. So even one thing that's wrong, like, spoils the whole thing altogether. If we say even there's just one small thing, that there's a couple errors in the Bible. Okay, most of it is true. 90% of it, or maybe it's like the... Hand sanitizer, it's like ninety-nine point nine 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 percent If there's even one error found in Scripture, it taints all of Scripture. Why is it such a big deal if there's even one thing wrong in Scripture? Well, first, by denying inerrancy, saying there's errors in Scripture, that's an affront against God and His nature. You're saying that God Lies because he claims that his word is true. And if you find an error in scripture, guess what? God is a liar. He's not telling the truth. It means God is evil and he's wrong to tell us lies and masquerade them as truth. It's a big deal if you say there's some errors in the Bible. Second thing, why it's such a big danger, is because it gives us the okay to lie. If God has lied to us in the Bible, even if it's not the majority of it, even if there's some lies, that's giving us the okay to say like, okay, you can, we can lie on smaller things. Say you held the limited inerrancy view, which says, oh, the big things in the Bible, God got right, but some of the smaller details are not true. That's like giving us the okay to say, okay, if, as long as you tell the truth on like the important big things and like, okay, if you tell a couple small white lies, then it's not a big deal. Be like, oh, I don't think that's what the Bible would want us to do. Ephesians 5.1, it says that we should be imitators of God. Well, if God's lied to us in Scripture, and he contradicts himself, that gives us the okay to say, okay, I can lie. <laughs> it's absurd. Another danger, the last danger of denying inerrancy, is that you can't really trust anything that the Bible says. If there's one thing wrong in Scripture, how do you not know that there's more? Okay, yeah. If God is capable of messing up on a small detail, maybe something that was in the Old Testament or or a a location in the New Testament, if God's capable of making that small mistake in Scripture, which the infallibility of Scripture would say that he can't, well, if he is capable of doing that, then how do we not know he's not capable of making mistakes on the bigger things? You'd be pretty skeptical about it. I think you'd be right to be skeptical about it. That's so why you can't, I think it's even more absurd to say, okay, yeah, most of it's true and not all of it. It makes more sense to either deny it altogether and toss out the Bible or say, no, all of it is true, which there's way more reason to believe that we can trust the small things, the big things, everything that's found in Scripture. We can trust God, small things, big things, all the words found in Scripture. We can trust it. We need to take all of it or none of it. There's so much reason for us to take all of it. I remember going to a restaurant not too long ago, Um, I guess not a restaurant, it's a fast food place, Del Taco, Um, I'm more of a Taco Bell fan, but I went to Del Taco, I know, I feel feel a little ashamed, but I guess now you're offended because I said Del Taco is not as good as Taco Bell, Uh, but regardless, I went to Del Taco, and I went to the restroom, and As I was washing my hands, oh, yeah, no, that wasn't the uh uh-oh part. The uh uh-oh part was I looked, and they had a sign in the restroom that says, you've probably seen it before, employees must wash their hands before returning to work. I'm like, really? (laughs) They need a sign for that? (laughs) Like, really? So there's employees coming in here, going to the bathroom, and, like, they thought this was such a big deal that people weren't doing it, (laughs) that they had to make a sign. (laughs) Like that's so gross. Like it was something that I was like, this shouldn't even need to be like, isn't that a given that like employees, like hopefully everyone, hopefully all of you, but employees especially, it's like they're washing their hands before they're going back to work and gonna make me some food to eat. It's like, that should be given, that should be gone without notice. But guess what? Clearly, (laughs) I didn't look up a situation, but clearly there were situations there was a situation <laughs> where some people weren't, that they were like, this is such a big deal. We need to make a sign so that they know. It's like, duh. But they, they needed the reminder. Same thing is true when it comes, us talking about that the Bible was out, is without error. It almost in your mind might seem like a, a duh. A lot of you guys who have grown up in the church and have taught that, yeah, the Bible's from God. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago. Yeah. If the Bible's from God, then it doesn't have error. Duh. It's like that should be going without saying. It's like common sense. Oh, yeah, yeah, the Bible's without error. But guess what? There's a lot of people who don't believe that. A lot of people who call themselves Christians who don't believe that. And, of course, people who aren't Christians who don't believe that. And that's why it's helpful for us to have the sign, have the reminder that, hey, the Bible is without error. Even though we shouldn't need that reminder, so much attack on Scripture that's helpful for us to talk about. That the Bible is free from errors and we can trust it. So we should study it. We should defend it. We should affirm it as truth. Be ready to respond to those who counter against it. Let's pray. God, would you help us to study Scripture? That when there's something in the Bible that seems a little confusing, that doesn't maybe seem true or maybe seems contradictory to other passages that we read that we wouldn't be quick to say, oh man, the Bible's wrong and let's throw it away. But we would study what the passages are talking about. Because God, we know that you do not make mistakes. You do not err. And so true with your word that your inspired word is free from error. It's inerrant. It's incapable of making mistakes. It's infallible. We can trust it. Help us to hold scripture highly, have a high view of it because we have a high view of you. Help us to do that better this week than we have in the past. We ask all these things in your son's name, amen.